people think you were like born out of the womb as this amazing athlete all of a sudden. And it's like, I learned to pitch and I was very average for a long time. And then everything clicked. Welcome to the Just Women Sports Podcast, where we talk to the biggest athletes in the world about the untold stories behind their success. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and my guest today is Kat Osterman. Kat Osterman is the most dominant pitcher in the history of softball. At the University of Texas, Kat became the only player to win three USA Softball Collegiate Player of the Year awards. In 2004, she led Team USA with 23 strikeouts during their gold medal run at the Athens Olympics. She again helped the team take home silver in Beijing. A four-time National Pro Fast Pitch Champion, Kat came out of retirement in 2017 in hopes to help Team USA win gold at the now 2021 Tokyo Olympics. Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. And we're just going to start off going back to where it all started for you, back to the beginning. You were born and raised in Houston, Texas. What was your early childhood like? And how would you say you were first introduced to sports in general? I played sports as soon as I think I could walk and hold balls and kick balls and everything else. So um, grew up in a family that loves basketball. My dad's from Southern Illinois. And so football wasn't really something we had on the TV when I was growing up. Um, but as soon as I was capable of, of playing sports, I was, in, I was in sports. Funny, I actually was in soccer for a long time. Um, was a pretty good goalie from what everyone tells me, but I got really bored being a goalie. So I said, no, I need to, I need to go find something else to do. Did you start soccer first? Like which sport was your first? Yeah. Soccer was first. Okay. Um, soccer was first. We introduced basketball in third grade Okay. when we could play with the YMCA and then softball. Actually, I played one year in like first or second grade and didn't like it and quit and then went back to it when I got bored from standing in the goal. So really? Yeah. Yeah, so I picked up softball again, probably in about fifth fifth grade, and uh, okay, that was that's when I started pitching. Though, like the first time, I was just you know everybody like the five year old picking flowers out in the outfield or something. Yeah, I was about um, to say five year old softball must be off of a tee, right? <laughs> yeah, fi- well, that was the problem. Was so they put first through fifth graders on the same team because they had just like leagues had divided, okay, and so they didn't have enough teams. I'm like first and fifth grade, that's a big um, maturity gap there, mm-hmm. so. Of course, the first graders were all out in the outfield picking flowers and chasing butterflies. So Got it. Got it. It was a little intimidating. So I was like, eh, not for me right now. Thanks. Weren't into it. That's so funny that you essentially quit yeah. the sport that you ended up being uber successful in later on in life as like five-year-old. Yeah. And I really went back to it just because I was like, I don't think I want to play soccer anymore. I don't really like being goalie. And obviously, they didn't think I could do anything else because they would like, oh, at halftime you can play midfield or whatever. And I would be like, okay. And then at halftime they'd be like, oh, the game's really close. We need you to stay in the goal. I'm like, great, thanks. <laughs> That's hilarious. So yeah, when I said that, my dad was like, okay, well, what do you want to do? He's like, you already play basketball in the winter. What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, do you want to try softball again? And I was like, sure, we can try that. And was then, it the type of thing where your parents were like, no, you got to be doing a sport basically every season? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I can't remember a season without a sport, to be honest. Same. Did you do anything else besides softball, basketball and soccer? Um, I played volleyball in junior high and then my freshman year of high school um, ended up uh, I quitting, leaving that just because um, competitive softball was playing in the fall. So it was like I had to I had to balance too much. And I was like, if I'm going to go play softball in college, I might as well just 
you know, go ahead and leave, leave volleyball behind. Ran track in junior high. I liked long distance running. So that part was, I would have been a perfect soccer player if they would have let me try it. No kidding. That's so funny that they didn't let you because yeah I feel like most people don't like long distance like the people the the thing people hate about playing soccer is that you have to run so much yeah but now that I'm older I'm like I don't know how you guys run five miles a game for like one goal that's just too much (laughs) the return on investment isn't that high sometimes that's (laughs) for sure so you quit as a five-year-old you came back to it as a fifth grader and that's when you started to get into pitching and what was the thing about pitching that you fell in love with? I fell in love with it from the first time I got to try it, to be honest. I think some of it is being so active. Obviously, we have to throw every pitch for the game to proceed. But I think it was just the challenge of you know hitting a good spot. Or Well, the first time would probably have been just getting the ball over the plate to where it made someone swing. But you know, Little League had rules where pitchers could only pitch so many innings. And the other two on our team had... Uh, because of rainouts and stuff being made up, they had met their innings. And so our coach was like, who wants to try to pitch? And I was the first person to raise my hand. I'm like, I'll try it. Never no having done it. Yeah. And then did it. And after the game, I asked my dad, I was like, I think I want to pitch. I want pitching lessons. I want to learn how to do this. And So um, when you raised your hand to say, I'll, I'll try it, you had never pitched before. Did you just go off of what, like watching what everyone else was doing and say, oh, I can just mimic their actions? Pretty much. <laughs> That's just, fascinating. Let me do something other than stand up first or in the outfield. And yeah, just, you know, figure, figure out how to get your arm in a circle and <laughs> throw it there. And, but yeah, after that, I, I, my dad said that game, he's like, you came off the field and beaming ear to ear and was just like, this is what I want to do. So that's so cool. Yeah. So for my 11th birthday, I asked for pitching lessons. Like I didn't want anything other than to be able to go to pitching lessons. That's amazing. So you really did just, it was love at first pitch, essentially. Yep, it truly was. It truly was. And it's such a technical technique, which makes me sound stupid for saying it like that. (laughs) So you immediately got into lessons and started to work on that technical side of the game. Do you like love that part of it, learning and kind of fine tuning and mastering that skill? Yeah. So, yeah, I started lessons right away. Uh, My dad and I practiced for a little while before I ever got back in another game. He didn't let me go try again. (laughs) Really? Wait, he was like, you can't pitch again until we practice more? Yeah, so part of it was my, that was my pitching coach's philosophy too. He was like, we're going to pitch and get technique right before you go back in, in a game and, you know, change your mechanics just to try to get the ball over the plate. So I practiced for a while and I loved it. I did. And you hit the nail on the head. It's it's trying to master every little part of it. It's trying to be as perfect as possible, even though, you know, we can't be perfect every single pitch. When I was young, it was about, yes, like what mechanics can I change or fix to be better? And then obviously as you get older, you start throwing pitches that move and change speeds and this and that. And just being able to try to master those and control those as perfectly as possible. It was a game. It was so fun for me. And it still is. I mean, 37, I'm still trying to make this ball move and miss bats. So Right. I know. It's so, it's so funny to, as you get older in your sport, for me, I'm the same way. I'm like, I love mastering or feeling like I can get as close to perfection as possible. So at what point do you feel like you realized you had it? and you could go super far and also decided like, this is what I want to do. So probably about 14, 
is when I knew I wanted to play in college and I had talked to my dad about it. And there's no real reason why I fell in love with the University of Texas as a fourth or fifth grader at some point in time. I think in Texas, you just decide you're either a Longhorn or an Aggie at some point in life. And, and you par- have to do it pretty early. It and seems. my parents like a having, fifth grader, you decided. Right. Nope. And my parents like having no ties to either. It was like, oh, well, I'm going to be a Longhorn. I just remember getting this purplish gray Longhorn shirt for Christmas. And it was like the best Christmas present ever. And I'm like, why did I choose that of all things at that point in time? But that is super funny. Yeah. You can't pinpoint like what it was. Was no, it the, it wasn't like I wasn't the Longhorns even, or something? No, I wasn't even big at softball yet. Like I have no idea. So, you know, at 13, 14, I had talked to my dad about wanting to play in college. If he thought I could be good enough to walk on somewhere, you know, would we be able to make that work? And so the thought process started as far as, you know, putting the process in place for the future. And then I was being recruited already. So when the recruiting carousel started, when I was yeah. in summer of my, between junior and senior year, there was obviously a lot of interest from a, a lot of schools across country. And so that was kind of the first, okay, we've made it moment. I think my dad thought, you know, we would get some interest from some schools. But when the, the letters started coming in, it was just like, oh, all right, this is a different level. Yeah. Well, you just said you guys, your first conversation was Walking about on. if you yep. could walk yep. on which is crazy. It's crazy thing about because I did. I specifically remember a girl from our area had gone to Texas and I had asked my dad, like, do you think I could be good enough to walk on at Texas? Because she's going there. He was like, I think you can be that good. But he's like, we'll keep working. And that was my dad. My dad I was like, it. oh, I, I'm sure you probably have similar stories. Like you might have performed well, but we could have done something better. And it's not the demeaning talk, but it's just like the you you need to keep working talk. I tell people all the time, I gave up, I think, 500 home runs in the driveway because he'd be like, oh, so-and-so hit that one. Oh, so-and-so hit that one. And I'm like... He would just smash yeah. it against you. I'm like, all right, thanks, Dad. <laughs> and then when I was 17 was kind of the big aha moment for me. Um, I got to play against the 2000 Olympic team as they toured before going to Sydney. And okay. I pitched five innings, allowed one hit, and struck out 11. As a high schooler against Team USA? As a high schooler, yeah. And that's... Okay, I was about to say that had to have been like, all right, yeah, I can do this. I left that and looked at my dad. I was like, okay, I want to be on that team one day. And he was like, okay, I think you could do that. That is <laughs> keep working. so cool. Yeah, exactly. You could do that, but keep working. So was that your first time that you thought, oh, I want to I wanna be on Team USA. I want to go to the Olympics. Yeah, we had gone to see them play their exhibition game in 96 in Houston. And it was like, oh, cool, softball's in the Olympics, but still just a little bit too young and still in my kind of developmental phase of, of softball for to for that to be like an actual dream. Um, but then after 2000, I was like, yep, that's, there it is. Yeah, that's, those are pretty impressive stats as a high schooler against a fully professional, the best women in the country for It was the insane. I still remember the game to this day and it's just like adrenaline high emotions and like, Every strikeout, you would have thought we just like won the game because I was so excited. But it was win-win as far as you get this experience. And if you lose, you're supposed totally. to. It's okay. But every strikeout, I was just jumping for joy. And I got my invite to the national program the next summer. And I remember some really? of the girls were like, you were so cocky. You were so bold. And I'm like, um, that was called like pure bliss. <laughs> I, <was laughs> like, I didn't expect to even like strike out any of you, yet alone 11. So I was like, it was, it was a really cool experience though. Yeah, I'm sure. I also read that in one high school game, you struck out 33 batters in 14 innings, which is just insane. 
it set a national record for strikeouts in a game less than 20 innings. Do you remember that game? I do. I also, I think I also scored the winning run in the 14th inning. <laughs> no way. Um, yeah, that was in high school. We were playing Cy Fair, which was actually one of our, our rivals. They were historically very good in softball. And yeah, that was the first club team I ever played on. My coach's daughter played on that team and another, like two or three of the girls played on that team. So it was always fun playing against them because I was playing against some of my former teammates and they were good. And that was a long game. Like that's one of those, yeah, we go extra innings and then you're like, okay, maybe we'll go to 10. And then after 10, you're like, okay, somebody can score. Anybody can score. Can we figure this out? Just somebody end it. So yeah, (laughs) set 14 innings, essentially two games back to back. Yeah, that's wild. So at what point, did you commit to Texas? How yeah, old were you? I, it was the fall of my senior year. So recruiting okay. was kind of, I say the old calendar, the normal calendar that most people did. So we took our visits at the beginning of our senior year. And then you, we committed mm-hmm. usually by October because signing day was in November. And so I took two of my five visits, canceled two. And that same team that played the Olympic team, six of us ended up going to Texas together. So no way. Yeah, it was a pretty cool experience to be able to stay with yeah. that many friends. But I loved Texas when I visited. My dad had taken me up there to college games um, once I got serious about softball. And it was just an atmosphere I loved. And I think more importantly, I was still home in Texas, but I was also far enough away from home that, you know, mom and dad couldn't just drop in for lunch or come check on me all the time. For sure. So going into Texas or into your career at Texas, how was the team before you got there? They were two years removed from going to the World Series for the first time. So they were a young program, but Krista Williams, who is an Olympian from Houston as well, um, had transferred from UCLA to Texas after her freshman year. And so she had taken them to the World Series, I think in their fourth, third or fourth year. Okay, And then she actually opted out of her senior year to try to kind of go the endorsement route with the Olympic team. And so then there's one year in between us and then I started. So they were good, but they were still up and coming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you guys were kind of filling in and like creating what could become something great. For sure. When you arrived your freshman year, you were second team All-American and Big 12 pitcher of the year right off the bat. Did you expect to be that successful immediately getting into the college game? Honestly, I had no idea. I think, you know, you, you're confident because you have a great club career and no one really knows what the yeah. next level is until you get to the next level. And my first weekend out was terrible. Thankfully, my dad last minute flew to the tournament or else I probably may not have gotten on the plane to go home. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things that you're in the moment and you just kind of are trying to buy into everything everyone's feeding you, you know, coaches, strength trainer, all of it. And definitely didn't expect to be that successful early, but at the same time, having my national team experience from the summer prior to entering college also knew that I had something if they selected me on that team, that I had something. um, And I just needed to figure out how to, you know, adjust to the next level. So that was definitely being called into team USA leading into Mm -hmm your freshman year was probably a huge confidence. Huge confidence, huge learning experience. Um, Yeah. Obviously I was the only high schooler and I was, I think the only, there was only one girl who had just been a freshman. Everyone else was like a sophomore or older and, you know, just trying to pick their brains and learn and figure out what it is I'm going to have to face off at as soon as I get to school. (laughs) Yeah. Absorb as much as possible being one of the younger ones. 
Well, you not only threw the first perfect game in UT history, you threw three of them your freshman year, which set a national record for freshmen, which goes along with your amazing transition from club to college. Can you explain to listeners what a perfect game is? Yeah, so perfect game, basically seven innings, 21 outs. No one gets on base, no hits, no walks, no hit by pitches. You have to credit your defense too because no errors for balls that are put in play. For sure. And it's really freaking hard to do. But yeah, I remember the first one because I knew, obviously, as the game ended, knew what we had had a perfect game. Like when you start to think about what did hitters do? And it was like, oh, they announced it, but like no one celebrated or anything. Like it was a doubleheader. So it was the first game of doubleheader. We were all like just filing into the dugout to go to the locker room. And no one the announcer then came on and said, oh, that was the first perfect game in UT history. And, you know, then the stands clapped. So the coach was like, go back out there, go away. <laughs> That's but crazy. yeah, it was, I didn't know it was the first one in history until he said that. So got it. Okay. So it was pretty cool though, especially as a freshman. I remember I didn't expect to do that. I opened the, you know, everyone gets the media guide and I opened it to the records page when I was a freshman and I looked at whatever the career strikeout record was. And I was like, dad, that's what I'm aiming at. So no, I set a goal. And then obviously that was, I surpassed it by quite a bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. I'm sure. I thought that anytime a batter was at Mm -hmm. bat and they hit the ball, that counted as a hit. But it only counts if they get on base, correct? Correct. Okay, yeah. So (laughs) that's why like a perfect game, you might not throw strikeouts, they might hit the ball, but like you said, you have to credit your defense. And it's obviously a big credit to the pitcher as well because you're doing so much work. As a pitcher, how conscious are you of the fact that, you know, in the moment you're pitching a perfect game? Yeah. Is it like, what does your internal dialogue look like doing that I'm pretty good at remembering what hitters do so I usually know what's going on but I don't start thinking about it probably to like the fifth inning because there's just second so third fourth inning there's still so much game left yeah so it's about the fifth inning that I start looking at it and it's like all right can we make this work so but it's not internal dialogue as long as as much as like when you go out for the seventh in college we had like if we yelled get dirty everyone knew like a no hitter or a perfect game was on the line like we're going all out for every play that we can. I love um, that. Get yeah. dirty. That's amazing. Um, so it was fun, but those are, they're intense moments too, because you're like really trying not to give up the hit. But then at the same time, you can't be too tense and like try to be too perfect because then you're going to walk somebody and that just totally. opens up a whole nother door and usually snowballs into a negative effect anyways. So, oh yeah. Cause if you walk somebody, then it's not a perfect right. game. Oh my God. Yeah. Perfect game's insane. Yeah thinking about it. I've never really sat and thought about what goes into that. That's crazy. Wow. Okay. Well, your sophomore year, you just got better, which is also crazy to think about. I'm going to read some highlights. Um, You led the nation in ERA and strikeout ratio. I'm going to have you explain these things. Um, And in your second season at Texas, you broke the school's career record for strikeouts, which you had just said you went into freshman year wanting to break and you broke it your sophomore year. No big deal. Um, Shutouts and wins. So you broke all those records your sophomore year. And then first team All-American and USA Softball Collegiate Player of the Year. And then you made your first trip to the College World Series that year where you tied a World Series record with 17 strikeouts against Cal. So I feel like, I mean, you obviously had a prolific 
freshman year, but then sophomore year, you just exploded even more. Like, were you just building on your freshman year or was it like switch flipped? Walk me through freshman to sophomore year. Yeah. So, um, I benefited again, like I had national team every summer in between all of my all my years of college. That's when everyone's like, oh, do you get summer vacation? I'm like, if you call playing softball vacation, then yes. Yeah, exactly. I know. I, I can't remember. Yeah. I never had summer, never had spring break, except for maybe right. one. Exactly. Like, Same thing. Yeah. Never get it. And so I was building on freshman, like freshman year to sophomore year. I had the national team in the middle, learned some things during that summer, just in kind of just like how to place my pitches a little better when hitters move in the box. Um, different pitch calling philosophy, that kind of stuff, and just starting to be more confidence built. And so by the end of my sophomore year, I was really confident in knowing what my best pitches were, when I needed to throw them. So a lot of people, there's young pitchers that don't want to shake off because they don't want to have to think about the the way they're pitching and how they're setting up pitches. And shake off, explain that to the listeners. (laughs) Because I know, I think I know what it is. It's when you say, no, I want that pitch. When the the catcher's telling you something. Yeah, so most of the time, (laughs) the pitching coach is giving the catcher the signal and the catcher's giving it to the pitcher. And so that's where a lot of times in college, pitchers are like, well, my coach knows better. So they just throw it. But if I, for me, if it's, if I don't, if I'm not completely convicted in the pitch, I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw it. And so there were times that I probably shook off more than most pitchers at that age. Um, but I was confident in what I could throw. So I just know there were a number of times that I just went with my gut as opposed to probably on paper what looked like it would work. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. I feel like that's a very mature characteristic to have as a college player to just trust, like, I know what I can do and I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I think, you know, being able to play in the USA program gave me that. Like, if I didn't have that, I don't know that I have that same confidence, but for sure. In, the national program, it's just pitcher catcher working. So it's like, I do have more control and more input into what we're throwing. And so when you come from that element and then now it's like, okay, well, I know this works because I've done it already. So wait, so at the national team level, the coach isn't giving the pitching signal. No. So at national team level, we, um, we have film sessions, um, scouting reports, charts from years past, whatever it is. And we go over all that. And then based on, you know, who's throwing and the catcher calls the game. Okay, cool. Didn't know that. I would have thought that the coach still had some sort of input in that. Every now and then before we go out for an inning, if there's a certain hitter we need to key on or something, he would give us, you know, like, let's stay away to this hitter. So like he gives us little tidbits here and there. But um, yeah, so it's it's different. Um, Some colleges let their catchers call the game by the time, by the halfway through my junior year, my catcher was calling my game at Texas. And is that like a, you create this relationship with your catcher and it's just kind of, I feel like it's the same way you work for me, like with the back line, like, or the, you know, the player playing in the position in front of me, you just have this connection and you understand each other and it's working through that. Yeah. So my junior year, I got a new catcher. So freshman year, the girl who caught was a junior. So she graduated. We got a new one in okay. the year I redshirted for the Olympics. And so my junior year, I worked with Megan Willis for the first time. And um, yeah, we are polar opposites when you talk about personality, but we instantly clicked as far as working in the bullpen and um, yeah, pitch calling and all of that. So I was fortunate. She actually caught me for about 10 years, um, two in college and then pro ball for, for eight or nine. Um, so Wow. So you guys established that early on and just let it ride. 
we did. We just clicked and she was smart. I think that's the other thing is obviously she took pride in the catching position. So she was super smart about, you know, when she watched when hitters move in the box, whether they move up or back or if they move off the plate on the plate. And she would look at that, point it out and then then call a pitch based on on what hitters were doing. And I love all the nuances in the different sports, like as just a casual fan, I would never think that, oh, the, the catcher is looking at the way the hitter is like approaching or positioning themselves on the plate. And that's determining what they're going to do. Yeah. I'm going to look at that way more now. You should. You should. (laughs) I will. (laughs) It's a fun part because then, yeah, you can, a lot of times you can tell if hitters are comfortable or not, because if they're not comfortable, they'll try to move like mid pitch. If they're comfortable, then they feel, you know, fill in themselves and have confidence. They usually stay in one place of the box, but. Got it. Yeah. Based on where they, uh, they stand a lot of times we'll change our game plan if we need to. That makes sense. So your signature pitch is a drop ball. Is that correct? Um, Can you explain what that is? So for baseball fans, it's kind of similar to a sinker, except for a little bit sharper. Baseball and softball pitches don't equate at all. So when we say a curveball and they say a curveball, they're like two totally different pitches. Okay. So if you combine their curveball and a sinker is kind of like what our drop ball would look like. So for me, it's like coming probably about three, four inch. I'm trying to aim three, four inches above the knees and then let it break. And when it breaks, it'll probably be right below the kneecaps. It's a fun pitch to watch people swing over. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably such a good feeling to be like, oh, I got yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, oh, it is. Strikeouts might be my... I try to teach kids, you know, like, oh, just make good pitches. And I, Meanwhile, I'm like, I'm over here trying to strike everyone out because it's just fun. And I can place it different heights. So like, well, if I wanted it for a strike, I aim three or four inches above the knee. But then obviously, as the count works in my favor where I'm ahead, I'll be able to take it lower off the plate, that kind of stuff, so... What do you think has made you the best pitcher in U.S. history, basically? Like, is it your mental game? Is it your um, dedication to the technique and the technical side of things? Like, what would you say separates you from everyone else? I think work ethic that I got at a really young age. I feel like like you're never, you just never feel satisfied. Well, we never were satisfied. But I also, I think, and you probably, same way, people think you were like born out of the womb as this amazing athlete all of a sudden. And it's like, I learned to pitch and I was very average for a long time. And then everything clicked once I obviously grew into my body and everything else. And so once it clicked, then the work ethic I had established at a younger age, simply because I loved pitching, um, paid off. And so that coupled with mindset, I mean, I think if you can survive giving up 500 home runs in the driveway with your dad, then when you give up like one, it's not a big deal. (laughs) Yeah, you just shake it off. But, you know, he was... I say he was hard on me. He wasn't hard on me. He just had high expectations. So when we learned to pitch, he was there catching and he would be, you know, he would tell me if the spin was off or if he, you know, one was, he thought one was spinning faster than the other, or if it broke more. And so just having that feedback, we were constantly trying to work to, you know, be better. And um, yeah. Yeah. So I think couple all that. And then that has allowed me to, my ball spins at an incredible rate, um, which is what I'm known for. Mm-hmm that um, is really what has given me the ability to just play as long as I have. Yeah, I know. I just think it's incredible. So you, back to college, played freshman and sophomore year, blew it out of the water, and then you took a gap year to go to the Athens Olympics with Team USA. What was that experience like for you? It was incredible. So they had told us in the fall of what would have been my junior year, they had said, you know, if you made the roster of 15, 
you had to forego school. And then if you were an alternate, you had a choice to go back. And so my parents and I had a meeting with coach and she's like, okay, you're just going to forego school. I'm like, well, no, if I'm an alternate, they said I could come back. And she's like, no, you're going to forego school. And I was just like, we haven't even had tryouts yet. Really? So this was before, like, they were like, no, you're on the team. We want you on the team. Well, I'm going to guess that, so Coach Clark, um, who was my head coach at Texas, had played for Coach Candrea, who was our national team head coach, when he coached junior college in Arizona back in the 80s. So they had a relationship. I had no clue at the time, just inferring now, knowing the coaching tree, like, I'm going to guess she called and was like, what's the likelihood? Like, I need to prepare my college team so can we get the likelihood. So yeah, they... Forgo school, which was cool. But then when I was home from breaks, everybody was in school and I'm like sitting in my apartment, just like, what do I do now? (sighs) Like hanging out. Yeah. So you went, you would go back to campus, but you just weren't taking classes. Yeah. I wasn't taking classes. I could still practice with the team and lift and stuff, but I was doing a different lifting program. So I usually lifted on my own, but yeah, I I would go to practice and that was about it. So I was kind of like semi living the professional life as a, a college non-student athlete at the point in time, just going to practice and then going home and hanging out. Yeah. Cause obviously for people who maybe don't know this, they made you forego school because you were going to miss so much. Yeah. So when the the spring hits, so when the college season starts, the national team tours and when we tour, we play all the colleges. So yeah, starting in the beginning of February, I was going to be home like five, six days a month max. So. Which is so crazy, crazy, huh? It's just, I look at it now and I'm like, how did we do that? And on a bus and, you know, I mean, we we really bust most places. We flew if it was like cross country, but other than that, we're driving this big old charter bus around. Yeah. But it was fun. We got to go almost all over the country. You know, a lot of times it's some smaller towns where our softball game is the, the biggest thing that night. And so everybody's there. So the crowds were cool and interacting with fans and just seeing the excitement for our sport on the Olympic stage. So, and obviously, you know, when you end it with winning a gold medal, that's the cherry on top. Totally worth it. (laughs) That's when everyone's like, what's your best memory? I'm like, really? (laughs) I need to explain this. (laughs) Um, Exactly. It was cool because especially for me being a college athlete, like obviously in college, we, you know, we work hard. We go through the daily grind and just being the youngest person um, on our roster of 15 to see the blood, sweat and tears like fully pay off and look back and be like, all right, all of that, like we weren't happy at the time or we were annoyed that we were running in the rain and you know, this and that. And it's just like, okay, but it was worth it. If it made us just a little bit better that day, it was worth it. Absolutely. I agree. It's about the yeah. journey. You make the most of it. And then, you know, you get the reward at the end. It's all worth it. And you guys did, like you said, you won a gold. It was one of the most dominant runs in softball history. You beat Australia 5-1 to win gold. And their one run was the only one scored against Team USA that entire Olympics. It was like a historic defensive effort. And you personally led the team with 23 strikeouts. I mean, what was the actual Olympic experience like? It just sounds like it was the best possible situation, like winning outright every time. Yeah, it was the best case scenario. I mean, what we had trained the whole time and coach's philosophy was we are going to be a well-oiled machine by the time we get over there. He's like, we're going to be the most fit team. We're going to be the most dominant team. Like that was the other kind of mantra was like, we're not just playing to win. We're playing to dominate. And so 
that's what that team had. That's the mentality we had. And I don't think any of us thought going over there that it would unfold the way it did as far as like not allowing a run till the final game and just literally putting up numbers that were incredible. But when you look back now, especially being older, like you can see that he prepared us for that. And so you walk on the field for the first time for your first practice and it's just like, oh my God, it's the same softball field we've always played on. Like no dimensions are different or anything, but you just know it's the Olympic stage. And we opened with Greece that year for the first game and all of us got mound time because they were like, we're going to get the nerves out now. And I remember when they put me in, I was like, this is awesome. And the whole world can watch. (laughs) And then my first pitch bounced and went two feet like wide of the plate. No way. I was so nervous. I mean, I've been nervous to where like you're still kind of, you're like you're shaking before you start throwing, but I think I was shaking the entire pitch. But after the first pitch, we settled in. Um, yeah, I, I was actually going to ask how you handled it mentally. Like, were you like, okay, I got this, you know, you're young, you'd never been to the Olympics before you're just enjoying yourself. Or were you like, oh my God, this is the Olympics. Like it obviously sounds yeah, like I was, was, oh my God, water. this is the Olympics. And it was, I just remember thinking the whole world can watch. Like that was the one thought, like, not like the world series where the country's watching, like the whole world can watch. Totally. Um, yeah. But then after that first game, I settled in and, um, Thankfully, like they did a really good job in preparing, I felt, everyone for their role. So I knew um, I was pretty much going to throw our game against Japan. Um, and then after that, uh, probably just be relief and not start another game. So um, I was prepared for that, but I pitched our eight-inning game against Japan to give us the one seed. Um, and that was kind of one of the, almost one of those flow state games, so to speak, until the end when we get a lead and then all of a sudden I got nervous and coach had to call timeout and come out to the mound and give me a nice lecture about what are you doing? You have a three run lead. Can you please just throw a yeah, strike? Yeah, I say, why'd you get nervous if you had a lead? Well, it was just like eighth inning. And when we go into the eighth inning, we start what they call international tiebreaker. So we start with a runner on second um, to just to try to speed the game up. And so anytime that happens, it's just nerve wracking. As a pitcher, it's annoying to have someone on second that didn't earn their way there, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm sure. But, you know, that's just one where you, you bunt them over and then any flute can score a run. And I don't think I put in perspective that we were three runs ahead. So if that run scored, who cared? I think, you know, being, that was probably the one thing being young in that moment. Like I tensed up because wanted to make sure we won Mm -hmm. and they just needed to come out to the circle and give me a little lecture and I was good. Yeah. Makes sense. How was winning at gold? Uh, This is the best experience ever. Um, I mean, you can win, you got for you guys, world cup is a little bit bigger than our worlds, but I mean, you can win other international events and hear your national anthem and it's, it's cool, but like nothing like it on the Olympic stage and then the aftermath and the parties and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. They're a good time. (laughs) So you win a gold medal, your junior year of college, you go back, you play two more seasons for UT and you win two more player of the year awards and you lead the team to two more college series college world series appearances all while breaking every record because you had already broken every record your sophomore year in your final win you set a world series record by striking out 18 batters in just seven innings yeah so you basically have the most incredible unprecedented career in ut history or college softball history um, you're the first softball player to have their jersey retired at Texas, only the third female in school history to have their jersey retired. So you basically just like are UT legend at this point, obviously Team USA legend too. Um, 
Can you describe what that means to you? I benefited in the fact that I went to Texas at like the glory years. I mean, they both basketball teams went to Final Four. Football won a national championship. Baseball won two national championships, I believe, while I was there. Um, swimming and diving were the premier program. So it was one of those times that like everyone was winning. So you kind of thought you were just doing what everyone else was doing. I was about to yeah. say, I, I feel similarly. You just like, you're expected to win. Exactly. And it's... so um, I knew after my junior year that I was like, okay, I was conscious of the fact that my career was unfolding in a pretty incredible way. And obviously, you know, you go around town and people who are fans recognize you and hi and this and that. And But when I left, I mean, that place is home. And so I think the cooler part of the story is they just started retiring women's jerseys last year. They retired plenty of men's jerseys, hadn't retired any females jerseys. And then Crystal Conte became the athletic director there and he changed that policy. And so they did it chronologically, which was kind of cool. So Cammie Etheridge, who's a basketball player, got hers first and she rightfully deserved it. It was one of the first player of the years for female athletics at Texas. But when he called to tell me that the jersey was going to get retired, I was like speechless One of those things I had kind of hoped at some point in time that the procedures would change and it would get done. And I think when people are like, oh, you're a legend, I'm like, no, that would be Earl Campbell and Ricky Williams and like these big football names and basketball names. Which is so annoying. It's like that. Thank God they changed that policy. Like, come on. But it's cool. I mean, that's a, you know, similar for you too at Stanford. Like, it's just such a rich athletic history and tradition that to have your name thrown around with what you deem the greats of that athletic organization. It's just such an honor. For sure. Totally agree with you. Leaving college, you were taken first overall in the National Pro Fast Pitch Softball League draft. For the listeners who aren't like familiar with the yeah. sport, can you describe what the professional scene looks like at this point in your career? Yeah, just kind of give us what that what you're getting into. Yeah. So the National Pro Fast Pitch is a league that runs basically end of May to the beginning of August, kind of basically summer months. I was drafted to a team in Connecticut, ended up not signing because the national team was playing so much that summer. I just was like, I'm not going to spend my whopping four weekends off going to play more softball. So I uh, waited and then signed as a free agent to a team in Rockford, Illinois. At that time, we had six teams in our league, mostly all Midwest, East, There was two in Illinois, one in Ohio, and then two or three East Coast, kind of Northeast. And so we played through the summer months. That league has fluctuated between six, five, four international teams have come in and played. I retired from that in 2015. And then the current state of professional softball, the MPF is still, it's still going. Mm -hmm. But then we have this new venture called Athletes Unlimited. The two CEOs, John Petrikoff and Jonathan Soros, have come up with this absolutely phenomenal way of of playing sports. And it doesn't change the yeah, yeah it doesn't awesome. change the rules to the game or anything. Although if players really felt adamantly about changing some role, we have the decision to do that if we wanted to. Not mid season, but like sure. as seasons go. So this is pretty much they came up with idea, but the athletes run it. So we draft our own teams every week. Based on how you play, you get points. Based on whether your team wins innings or games, you get points. And at the end of every week, real time on TV and stuff, they show the rankings. But we get to redraft our team based on 
you know, whether you like somebody, whether you want somebody that's hot right now, whatever it is you choose, if everybody likes the same color, I guess, if you wanted. But yeah. the other part <laughs> is at the end of the year, the very end of six weeks, our six weeks period, um, based on where you're ranked in the final rankings, we get bonus money based on that. And so is everybody, is each player individually ranked against others based on wins and points and that sort of thing? And then the, you, it's like the top players get yeah. to draft the teams, correct? Yeah. So everyone gets ranked. So you could have a pitcher that may not even pitch that week, but if her team wins all the games, she may have more points than somebody that played every game. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. And then yes, the top four players get to um, draft their teams and team colors go based on rankings. So the first player is team gold, second player is team orange, third player is team blue, and then fourth player is team purple. So if you stay four, you'll always wear the purple jersey and if you're state one, you get to wear the, well, it's a Navy jersey with gold writing, but you get to be team gold every week. It sounds awesome. And I've been following along on social media. Have you enjoyed, you obviously said like you've thought this is a really cool concept. Yeah. It's just been incredible to see how many, like I wouldn't have played with two thirds of these girls if I hadn't done this because they're all so much younger mm-hmm. and I would never have crossed paths with them without this kind of environment. It sounds awesome. And I'm really excited that this has been rolled out and it's been so successful and that you as an athlete are enjoying it because I feel like there's so many different ways that you can structure leagues and teams and, you know, that sort of thing that I like the creativity behind it. I I find it. It's I mean, no one else has done something like this, which is really cool. It's like fantasy sports in real life. Yeah, exactly. Fantasy team every week. It's awesome. But yeah. Um. So not to like rewind a ton, but to kind of explain, you know, obviously you're talking about Athletes Unlimited, which is what you're doing right now. And you're still, you're with Team USA getting ready for Olympics 2021 in Tokyo. But to rewind, and this is what I find so fascinating about your career. Obviously, the legend status is one thing, but going into 2008 Olympics, before that, they had said that 2012 Olympics softball wasn't going to be in it. Correct. So after in 2005, IOC came out and did baseball and softball were eliminated from the Olympic Games following 08. Um, so, yeah, we knew going into 08, there was a finality like, boom, we're done. And we don't know when or if we'll ever get back in. What was that like? I mean, it's that just I feel like if they were to ever take soccer out of the Olympics, I would be crushed. Right. The worst part, it was like completely blindsided. I still remember um, I was back. It was in the summer of 05 and I was back um, in Austin hanging out with some of our baseball players. And it literally went across the bottom line of ESPN. Like that's, that's how, how I found you found out. out? Yeah, oh that's how gosh. I found out. One of the baseball players was like, looks like your career is going to be ended sooner. And I'm like, what? And then it went across again. And I was like, no way. And then. Oh my about five gosh. minutes after that, I think we got a text message from our communications director with the national team that was like, this just happened. Like, so I'm guessing they got blindsided too. Oh, But it just, it was such a slap in the face. And I think for me personally, I'd probably decided, oh, I'll play till through 2012 and then I'll be done. And then it's like all of a sudden like, oh, okay, well, 2012 is not going to happen. So what are we going to do? Did you at that point think... Well, I'm going to play beyond 2008 because I'm still young. I'm going to play professionally. I'm going to do this as long as I, you know, it's still. Yeah. So I knew that the professional league existed and I wanted to do that as long as possible. And so 
I wasn't sure after we got voted out in 2008 how long I would keep playing, but I actually got traded to a team in Florida called the um, USSA Pride. And it was just a great situation and a great setup, just how we were treated, how we were paid, everything. And so I ended up playing there well past what I thought I was going to play, to be honest. Um, somewhere in my head when I was younger, I was like, oh, I'll play till I'm 30 and then I'm done. Like, I guess I thought 30 was old. Um, <laughs> yeah, now, now we, know we know better. better. And so, yeah, I played till I was 35 and then retired. Yeah. So you, 2008 Olympics, mm-hmm. you go into it being like, this is the last hurrah, essentially. You don't know if it's going to come back. And you guys end up winning silver. Yes against Japan. You guys lose yeah. to Japan in the final. It was terrible. I know. Terrible. Did that make, I mean, did it make it even, I can answer this for you, did it make it even worse getting silver and knowing like, okay, that was my last yeah. Olympics? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think you put it, we won silver, but if you ask an athlete that's playing in that gold medal match, you like lose the gold medal and that's how you like. Exactly. Yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah it's like you don't, you don't win yeah, silver. You don't you win just, silver. Yeah, for it's sure. a consolation prize for not winning gold. I mean, and still you have to like convince yourself later or remind yourself later that that's still an incredible accomplishment. For sure. But yeah, it was hard because not only did we not win, it was like, it was almost a nightmare game and anything that could go wrong did go wrong. Like, it was just like, that's really how our Olympic story is going to end. And yeah, it was brutal for quite a long time afterwards. (laughs) Um, Well... So not to get ahead of myself, but you go on, you win four NPF championships from 2009, 2014. You have a successful, you know, pro career. You have a gold medal. You end up retiring in 2015. And our agent talks about your retirement game and just being like, it just didn't feel right. Like, I can't believe that this legend of an athlete of a softball player retired in this fashion you know like as opposed to going out after a gold medal game or something yeah. like that and but then you unretire in 2016 they say softball's coming back in 2020 so how did you hear that news um not on ESPN no I, I didn't hear that on ESPN well probably on social media though <laughs> yeah so they had formed the world baseball softball confederation that was pushing to get the sport back in the games and I think Somewhere, I don't know if it's always been this way or, but the host, the host country gets to pick two sports. And so obviously baseball, softball are both very popular in Tokyo. Yeah. So that was the push was, okay, Tokyo's hosting the Olympics. Let's get it back in. And so they chose, and I think they put, you know, they put out a post. We got an email from USA softball. Like we actually got notified better than the bottom line of ESPN. Um, but at that time I still wasn't thinking about playing. I was like, oh, that's cool. I was really? like, that's cool. There'll be another generation of softball players. I get to go, like go keep compete in the Olympics. And yeah, I wasn't missing playing. I was coaching and I loved okay. coaching. And yep. then coach Erickson, our head coach for the national team asked me to put my resume in for the coaching pool. I was like, okay. <laughs> you go, no, 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 no. I still got it. <laughs> I was like, why? And he's like, just, will you please just do it? And I'm like, Okay. So I did it. And then when they announced the coaching staffs for the national team and the junior team, I wasn't on either one. And I wasn't really upset. Like part of me was like, why'd you force me to put my resume in? Yeah, I wasn't going to be chosen, but whatever. But then that like got my wheels spinning because I'm like, if I'm not upset that I didn't get chosen, like why am I keeping my resume in there anyways? So the wheels had also started me saying like, why am I going to coach the team when I think like I could probably still throw? 
And I think I made that statement to one of my best friends and she was like, well, then go throw. And I was like, excuse me. She goes, you know, you want to. And I was like, quit reading my mind right now. (laughs) I was like, sometimes you need somebody else to tell you exactly what you're thinking. And, and she did, she, she pushed and I said, you know, I didn't want to have to resign and lose my job. And she had actually worked with me at Texas State University a couple years before that. And so she basically told my boss who had been her boss, she was like, she wants to play, but she's afraid that she's going to have to resign. And so when my boss was like, hey, we'll make it work. I was like, oh, all right. And so like 36 hours later, I walked into her office and said, just so you know, I'm going to start training. I love that. And so yeah, fall of 17, I decided, all right, I'm going to give this a go. And yeah, I called Ken and he was like, yes, this is how it needs to end. Oh, um, I love it. And yeah. I was like, all right, well, get to work. Yeah, exactly. Your, exactly. Between your me job, and Kelly, you'll be work cut out for you. Go to work. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, it just, it makes me, when I found this out, it made me so happy because I just feel like you're not, you weren't meant to end your Olympic career in 2008. What would you say the hardest part about becoming a like unretiring was I feel like there's probably a lot of things there are um to be honest the hardest part was the mental side I think and you could probably attest that like once you get a good mental like a mindset and a good mental mental game so to speak like it's almost automatic when you're in game and it can just turn on and off and you can do what you need to do to to deal with adversity and I thought that I would take the field again and then like that mindset would just light switch on and it wouldn't like I was coming off the field complaining about something and my coach is like first of all you've pitched two games in the last five years or three years and he's like so you're expecting to be perfect why and I'm like uh because that's what I expect isn't I thought isn't that what we're all supposed to expect yeah you like preach the process to younger athletes and then you just assume you're going to flip a switch and there's no process. And I was like, okay, process. I like had to go back to being like, okay, buy into the process, figure it out, let it develop again. Totally. But that was, yeah, that was the hardest part was just, I, I don't know why I thought I was just going to go out and mental switch, just flip on. Here we go. It was short circuited. Yeah. It it just needed, it had a little rusty. We just had to get the rust off to let everything (laughs) circulate through. Get flowing again. Oh man. Well, I'm so excited to watch you next year and to crush it and to win a gold medal. Cause I know that you guys will. And I'm just so happy that you get to have one last go at the Olympics. Like that's so cool. Yeah. I feel like not many people in their career have had the highs and lows of like your sports taken out of the, one of the biggest stages it can play on. And then it's reintroduced and you come out of retirement. It's just crazy. I feel like your story is, I love it. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I think I'd have to cheers to my dad, to be honest. Yes. Um, years of sitting on a bucket catching me, but just being that parent that was in tune to lessons and making sure um, I remembered what I was taught when I came home. And then obviously the older I get, your dad never turns off the the semi-coaching um, role. So you call after a game and it's still, oh, I knew you were going to throw that pitch there or you should have done this here. Oh, and man. So I would have to cheers to my dad because he's been there, is still there rides the highs and lows with me and uh, just been, you know, my biggest supporter and my rock the whole way through. Amazing. Cheers, dad. So we have two more questions and it's our repeat questions that we do. Um, So the first one is they say, work hard, get lucky. How much of your success is predicated on luck? Oh, I've listened to your podcast. So you like percentages. (laughs) 
I do. I always, people like give scenarios and they talk about, it. I'm like, okay, I need a number. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to go 87% hard work, 13% luck. Oh, I love the random Yeah, I don't numbers. like this. Yeah. You know? No. I think there's some things that like situationally, there's a little bit of luck or something falls your way in all sports. I mean, soccer own goals. I'm sure you're like that. Yeah. You don't train for that. It just happens. Um, you know, yeah. we don't practice like the little, we call them blue pits, like that just kind of fall into no man's land. It's just like what happens. So there's some luck to it, but I just think, I think overall the hard work you put in is, is what really carries you. Yeah. Sounds like it from talking with you today. You can yes. always be better. Yep. says dad. All right. So you've accomplished literally, I feel like everything and are essentially the best of the best in what you do. So where do you go next? Which I guess we know. And how do you keep pushing? So yeah, continue to train for Tokyo 2021. And then after that, I will have the opportunity to play Athletes Unlimited again next year if I want. Um, So I'm going to see what that looks like. I mean, it's hard to say no when it's only six weeks and I'll have been in shape from Tokyo. So balancing that in my mind, but you know, right now it's keep pushing because it is, I get one last shot at the Olympics. And, um, I think the other part of that is I'm surrounded by a bunch of younger athletes who thought they wouldn't have this opportunity. And so I feel like it's partly my responsibility to make sure I do everything I can to give us the best shot at winning an Olympic gold medal. So that way they get to experience what I already have once. And then obviously I would, I would love to experience that too myself, but to be able to help this younger generation get the best experience out of the Olympics. That's awesome. I love that. That's a perfect end point. So thanks for giving us this time today and sharing your story with us. Because like I said, I just, I think it's such a cool sports story. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. For more great sports content, go to justwomensports.com and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Our show was co-produced by Just Women Sports and Boom Integrated. Big thanks to our executive producers, Haley Rosen, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lye. John Murray and Sydney Shaw do our research. Production by Jen Grossman, Jeannie Montalvo, Victoria Gruenberg, Clint Rhodes, and Juan Garcia Ticula. Special thanks to Jesse Louie, Haley Kottmeyer, Savon Nadler, Dory Newman, Isis Haywood, and Kathleen Lumavi. I'm Kelly O'Hara, and you've been listening to the Just Women Sports Podcast. Catch you next time.